Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're listening to episode 42. The crime that you're covering in this legal thriller is as dark as they come. Where did the story come from for you or or why did you think this was an important story to tell? The genesis of it really came from, uh, in my day job is I'm an attorney. And in 2019, I had been at the Bar Association meeting in Atlantic City, and there was a seminar on human trafficking. And I was sitting there listening to them talk about the law and and how this permeates our society without people knowing about it. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it. And and it wasn't like, you know, we, we say the words human trafficking and we're thinking of something that happens some other place. And it's happening right here. I'm in New Jersey. It's happening in New Jersey. It happens across the country. I thought this would be, you know, a good subject to write about in the sense that so many people don't realize it's right here, right now, amongst all of us. This is Robin Geigel talking about book two of her legal thriller series. Part of her writing genius is introducing readers to things and people around them that they might not otherwise see or understand. Her novel, Survivor's Guilt, is about the greedy and powerful coming up against the system we call justice and being held accountable for who they've exploited. That's one of the things I really liked about the story is that you... You make it very believable. The situations that you write about, these are the most vulnerable among us, not just because they're children, but because they're vulnerable in society in general for maybe their immigration status or their family structure. You know, it was easier to imagine. I think you put a real face to something that's sort of hard to picture. Right. You know, it also happens, uh, I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community, and it happens a lot to LGBTQ kids because they are, you know, they become homeless because they they are either thrown out of their homes when they come out or somebody outs them. 40% of, of all homeless youth in New York City are LGBTQ. And so, you know, that's, again, a very vulnerable population. And as you said, when you're in a vulnerable situation, either because of your family situation, your immigration status, your gender identity or sexual orientation, those are the kids that that wind up being exploited. Yes. And technology, I think, is another really interesting component to me about this. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you how you incorporated that? Because I, some of this criminal activity wouldn't be possible without the use of technology. There's this darker side of this throughout this whole story. 
So there's the dark side of technology, which is the encryption software that criminal organizations can use to to mask things and, and right. to, to keep law enforcement from finding out what they're doing. There's the offshore money so that their ill-gotten gains could be hidden. So there's there's that part of technology. And then there's the other part of technology that that I kind of used for good people can have their computers taken over and and their information stolen in this particular case i i actually use that for good so to speak and and i i have to give credit to to one of my sons uh, i i have three children and my middle son colin geigel who is also a published author um <laughs> but happens to be uh you know he's got a computer engineering degree and so i picked his brain frequently in terms of <laughs> You know, the, the technology and yeah. how it worked. Expert. It was easy to follow. It was easy yeah. to follow, but it was a really critical component in it because it was a more modern version of um, of spying. There was the way that, that your character is, is hacking in or listening in and discovering things. And, um, and I thought throughout, you had a lot of details about the system we call justice you know, procedural things, but they were also about ethics. And I think it was a nice thing for, for a lay person to get some understanding. And I think as an author, that's a real, an author of fiction. For me, the best stories, the best authors help readers see things through fiction that expand our empathy or expose us to something maybe we haven't been exposed to in our daily life in a way that helps us in our moral judgments in our real life. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think, you know, so many people, their, their view of the legal system comes from what they see on Law and Order or, or, or you know, some reality TV show. And, and I wanted to try to, to dig a little bit deeper to show maybe a, a, a more complete picture so that you get to see all the players. You get to see Aaron and Dwayne, who are the defense lawyers. You get to see what the prosecutors are doing and thinking. You, you understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And right. at the same time, I wanted you to see what the judges are doing and why the judges are doing what they do. Um, right. So I, I tried to complete to to paint a complete picture as opposed mm-hmm. to just seeing, you know, bits and pieces that you see on, on television. Right. One of my favorite parts of the book is you have Erin and her client talking about really big questions that don't have easy answers. You know, it's a very deep ethical discussion about whether or not you're willing to risk someone that you love, their oh. life, to speak against someone who has exploited and abused innocence, right? And so if you could stop abuse of innocent people, but by doing so, you put your loved one at risk, would you do it? And it's this massively unanswerable question, but they have a really sincere conversation about it. They do. And it's through, you know, something that happens in the story and knowing that in her own mind, if she had to make that decision, the decision that she's telling the client to make, she doesn't right. know that she could make that decision the way she wants her client to make it. That right. it, it, it's such a tough decision as to whether or not you risk the life of someone you love to do the right thing. Yeah. 
these are big questions for a legal thriller, Robin. I mean, I think, and I think you, honestly, I think you've done that a couple of times. There's this wonderful conversation at a a sporting event between Erin and her sister-in-law, and they're talking about being a good person and relationship and, and cherishing life and what it takes to really appreciate life. You had some very deep conversations where you peel back who the characters are and the specifics of the story and reveal a bigger ethical moral humanity question. Thank you. I, I really do want to write more than legal thrillers, not in the sense that I, I want to branch out and do something different, but I want my, my books to be more than a legal thriller, if, if that makes sense. I want yeah. to tackle issues that the characters face in real life. Um, so for example, you know, it's not a spoiler to say in Survivor's Guilt, Erin's mom, who she's incredibly co- close with, Peg McCabe, is diagnosed with breast cancer. And, and that's part of the story. It doesn't necessarily move the plot of the legal thriller along, but it's part of Erin's life. And it leads to that conversation that you're talking about with her sister-in-law on the sidelines about, you know, the, the fragility of life and, and, you know, why we do things and, and the fact that we convince ourselves that we're here forever when we, all of us aren't. And in that sense, even though it doesn't necessarily add to the thriller part of the story, it adds to the characters. And I want my characters to be three-dimensional human beings with a lot of things that impact their lives and may impact decisions that do play into the role is part of the legal thriller. Um, That that you have this view of them as a three-dimensional person, somebody that you you would go out and have a glass of wine with with Erin McKay because you feel like you know her and you know something about her life. Yes. I loved that about it. I thought she was very three-dimensional and... And I'm glad you brought up um, her mom, because I think some of the lines that I underlined three times, life lesson dialogue happened between Aaron and, and Peg. And some of it has to do with Peg encouraging Aaron to be the best person she can be, right? And some of it's relationship advice, which we expect from a mother-daughter conversation. Um, but some of it is also about overcoming her own self-doubt, encouraging her to embrace her life as a woman. Yes. And I, I felt like those were very, I felt like I was eavesdropping on a real conversation. So where did, where did that come from? Peg McCabe is an homage to my mom. She truly is. Um, My mom passed in December of 2020 and there are so many things about Peg McCabe that come from my mom uh, in the sense that when I came out to my mom in 2007, 2008, you have to understand my mom was in her eighties at that point in time, good Irish Catholic woman went to church every day. went to mass every day and she had a real tough time understanding me and and who I was and why I was coming out the way I was and um and yet 
before I started living full-time as Robin, um, we had dinner together and, and she said to me, you know, I, I don't like this. I don't want this. I wish you wouldn't do this, but you're my child and I'm always going to love you. And she did. And we had the best relationship after I transitioned. I mean, my mom had a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> she was with it till the day she died. And so, so much of, of Peg is my mom. Um, some of the lines directly from my mother, um, you know, so, you know, I, I just love writing Peg. I'm working on book three now. And, and obviously my, my mom is gone, but Peg lives on. And, and as long yeah. as Peg lives on, my mom lives on. So. That's wonderful. I love that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Let's pause right there and listen to some of the story. This is the beginning of Chapter 1, read by Marguerite Gavin, a narrator with 20 years' experience, numerous Audi nominations and Earphones Awards. Audiophile Magazine says she has the coveted ability to disappear as the narrator, letting the story take the limelight it deserves. This is from Survivor's Guilt by Robin Geigel, Produced by Recorded Books. Narrated by Marguerite Gavin. Erin McCabe looked up, brushed her long, copper-colored hair back from her face, and smiled. She and Duane had been partners in the law firm of McCabe and Swisher for the last five years, specializing in representing defendants in criminal cases. Oh, living the dream... One nightmare at a time, she responded, gesturing to the piles of papers stacked haphazardly on her desk among the empty Dunkin' Donuts cups. So has Judge Fowler incorporated Casual Friday into his trial calendar? He asked jokingly. She smiled at his reference to the fact that she was wearing jeans and a Dixie Chicks t-shirt. No, no trial today. Judge Fowler schedules his sentencing hearings for every other Friday, so I get to come to the office in jeans and see your smiling face. She reached down and picked up a brief in opposition to a motion to dismiss an indictment that she had filed in one of their cases and try to catch up on all the shit that's been accumulating while I'm on trial. After pulling back one of the chairs in front of her desk, Duane plopped down. He stretched his legs out in front of the chair as he uncurled his six-foot-two-inch frame. Unlike Aaron's casual Friday attire, Swish wore a charcoal-gray suit with a light pink shirt, neither of which did anything to disguise that at thirty-seven he was still in great shape and only a few pounds heavier from when he was all ivy at brown. Swish, as everyone called him, both because of his last name and his prowess from three-point range on the basketball court, was not only her law partner, he was probably her best friend, too. They made an interesting pair. Even though Aaron was only six months younger, Swish, with his chiseled physique, dark brown skin, and well-trimmed goatee, made a commanding appearance. Whereas Erin, with her girl-next-door looks, dusting of freckles that ran across the bridge of her nose, and slim athletic figure 
was often mistaken for being younger and less experienced, a perception that she wasn't afraid to use to her advantage in the courtroom. How's the trial going? Remind me again why we agreed to take this case, she asked. He chuckled. <laughs> we got a big retainer. Right. She shook her head and inhaled. Swish. These guys are definitely the gang that couldn't shoot straight. They set up an offshore gambling operation in Costa Rica, installed sophisticated encryption software to protect the website, and then talked about what they were doing on the phone like they were making dinner plans. So what's the defense? The three guys at the top are arguing that they thought it was legal, she said, gesturing with her hands that she had little faith in the merits of their argument. Our guy, Justin Mackey, claims that all he did was design and sell encryption software, and that he had no idea what anyone was using it for. Swish shrugged. Sounds like a plausible defense. He seems to think so, but I'm a little less sanguine. Unfortunately, even though he claims he didn't know what anyone was using the software for, he did a lot of talking on the phone, and the wiretaps picked up some pretty damning conversations between him and one of the top guys. Plus, he liked to bet. A lot. Gonna be tough to sell that he didn't know what they were using his software for. And for someone who was supposedly into all this encryption shit to keep everything secret, he certainly didn't seem too concerned about talking about things openly on the phone. Any chance of a plea? Swish asked. The state offered some decent deals early on, but no takers. She said, My sense is these guys are protecting someone else. Even our guy? Yeah. He clearly knows more than he's letting on to me. That said, I'm not sure he even knows who he's protecting. She shook her head, allowing her frustration to show. She liked Justin. He was young, 28, lived with his mom, and seemed like a decent guy. As they prepared for trial and she had gotten to know him, her take was that he had just gotten in over his head, probably because not only did he bet a lot, but from what she had heard listening to the wiretap recordings, he also lost a lot. How much longer do you have to go? He asked. I expect the state is going to wrap up early next week, so we're in the home stretch. A new defense case? She cringed. Not for me. I can't put him on a stand. They'd kill him on cross with the wiretaps. Sorry. He said. Anything I can help you with? No, I don't think so. If there's any silver lining, it's that we're in front of Judge Fowler. Assuming Mackie gets convicted, I'm pretty sure Fowler won't revoke his bail prior to sentencing, and since it's Justin's first offense, I'm hoping he doesn't get more than 18 months. Here if you need anything, he offered. Thanks. Anything new here? I had the motion to suppress in the Creswell case in front of Judge Anita Reynolds down in Ocean County. Aaron smiled. Judge Reynolds had briefly presided over the case involving their client Sharice Barnes. Sharice's case had made Aaron famous, or, more accurately, infamous, at least in much of New Jersey. Then again, defending a transgender woman of color accused of murdering the son of a now gubernatorial candidate had a tendency to generate publicity, especially when Aaron's own status as a transgender woman figured prominently in the coverage. I like Reynolds. 
I wish she had continued to handle Charisse's case, Aaron said. How'd the motion go? She asked. She's reserved, but I think she's going to grant it. I mean, she should. They came into the guy's house without a warrant, after he refused to let them in, and then claimed they saw drug paraphernalia in plain view, in his bedroom on the second floor. She laughed. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I like your chances on that one. Sport ended up like we were talking about a conversation on the sidelines, but you also have Aaron as a runner. And I think you even allude to it being almost a kind of therapy, right? So are you a runner or have you have sports played that kind of role in your life? Yes. Um, since probably right after I graduated law school, uh, I took up jogging, running. I've done five marathons. So wow. It is something that's always been part of my life. Still do it, not quite as frequently as I used to, but I still run uh, or jog or, or move faster than walking. And when I was going through, you know, my own angst and, and then my own transition, it truly was therapy for me. And it just helped me so much just in terms of my own mental health. It has played an important role in my life. As my kids have pointed out to me, um, you know, just about everybody in the book is athletic. You know, Dwayne, yeah. her, her law partner, had played basketball in college and, and her nephews are, are, you know, play on a soccer team. And I think part of that is because as much as running was, was and is a part of my life, my kids, all three of my kids grew up playing soccer and sports was such an integral part of their lives. And mm -hmm. because of that became part of our family life and right. they, they all still play and they're, you know, in their thirties now uh, that it, it just seems such a natural thing to add to the storyline because it, it, it was a family thing. It was something that we did. It was something that we enjoyed together. So yeah. that's how it worked its way in there. Um, okay, the other quirky question is that at one point you say that Erin is wearing her lucky socks to court, that she's a little superstitious. And I wondered if you were a little superstitious or if that was just a characteristic that you gave completely to Erin. I'm not that good an author. I couldn't just make that up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can be a little bit superstitious at times. Um, so, yes. Yes. Lucky socks. Or, so will you be wearing anything lucky on the 25th when the book launches? <laughs> I'm not going to give away my secrets. <laughs> no, <laughs> they're that powerful. Yes. Oh, yeah. I see. They, they have to be protected. I think probably it ties into the sports, the whole sports thing that when you're a sports fan, you do become superstitious. Like, yeah. oh, I was wearing that shirt when they won the last time. Maybe I should wear that shirt again. Yes. Like somehow a shirt that some fan <laughs> is wearing. In Made a difference. Yeah. We're crazy. What can I say? Right. And creatures of habit. That's how yeah. habits are formed, right? Is sometimes through superstitions or through this worked for me once. I'm not going to stop doing that. I'm going to keep doing that particular thing, right? Um, yeah. That that was good to pick up on. No, no one has picked up on that. So thank you. That was good. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting. I was like, lucky socks. <laughs> Lawyers wear lucky socks? Who knew? I liked it, though. Again, I think you have really fleshed her out as a person. And I love that this is 
part of an ongoing series of stories with this character. I did not read book one. I started with this one. And I think you're right that it is a very standalone um, story. And I think you do enough uh, familiarizing us with who the characters are at the very beginning that I wasn't, I wasn't ever lost in that. I knew who everyone was. Um, when I read, I went back and did read some of the reviews for the first book and they were fantastic. Like that must've just been, that was a debut novel, right? That's the first time you entered into this space. And it was things like um, quietly groundbreaking. groundbreaking. Not that I haven't memorized. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which ones have you memorized? Like what made the most impact to you as an author? Uh, so when the New York Times book review calls your book quietly groundbreaking, I will remember that one for a long time. Just totally unexpected um, and overwhelming at times. And, yeah. uh, you know, of course, it's come out in the middle of a pandemic. And now I have book two coming out in the middle of a pandemic. So it's been a little frustrating because I, I haven't been able to do all the things that authors normally do in terms of right. going to book signings and yeah. attending events and conventions and those kinds of things. So I've missed that part of the experience. But the part of the experience that that I've had has been fantastic. And I and I will say that for somebody who's a debut author, there's so many established authors out there in, you know, the, the Twitterverse and, and and other places who have just been so kind to me and and included me in things and got me on virtual panels and everything. It's just such a wonderful community to be part of. And there's there's no pettiness or jealousy or anything else. Yeah. It's, come on, let's help you along, you know? And yes. and so that, along with the reviews and the the camaraderie of meeting new people and sharing things with, with authors, it, it's been beyond my wildest dreams. It really has. Yeah. Well, did you intend to be quietly groundbreaking? I intended to write a legal thriller and it, you know, it, it was kind of applying the, the Mary Poppins theory to writing is that I wanted to write a, a story that would attract those people who were into legal thrillers. And then with a little spoonful of sugar, try to get them to understand a little bit about the transgender community and what it was, what it's like for transgender people. I thought the characters that had suffered greatly, who then exhibited great strength in the story, was also really compelling. I, that that was truly intentional. In, the, in one of the things that I learned, at, as I mentioned at, at this seminar, was how we tend to see people who have been abused solely as victims. You know, that diminishes them, that 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 puts them into this box where all they are is a victim. And, and so I wanted, I wanted my characters to be resilient and to be able to stand on their own and not just be victims. Yeah. Yeah. One of them's kind of a badass. She's <laughs> right. No spoilers, but yeah. No spoilers, but yeah. On that no-spoilers note about the strong characters and legal thriller Robin has written, we will close this episode. 
I hope you will visit kensingtonbooks.com to save on Robin's books and their entire incredible library. Just use the Desert Erotum podcast code DP20 at checkout. If you are hooked on narrator Marguerite Gavin's delivery, in a few weeks, you can buy the audiobook at Libro FM. Please use the Desert Erotum podcast affiliate link with Libro FM in the show notes. It's also on the podcast website and in our social media bios. Thanks to Vida at Kensington Books for introducing me to Robin. And, as always, thank you for listening. This has been Season 2, Episode 42. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Have a great rest of your evening. You too. Thank you again. Bye. Bye.